So on today's episode of The Encrypted Economy, I have Matt Hogan, who's the CIO of Bitwise Asset Management on the show. Now, for those of you who don't know, Bitwise Asset Management was founded in 2017. It pioneered the very first cryptocurrency index fund, and it is the leading provider of rules-based exposure to the crypto asset space. And in breaking news, as of last week, they became the first provider of an index-based DeFi fund. So actually, we taped this episode a couple of weeks back, and then when I found this out, I reconnected with Matt, and I tacked that on as an add-on to the end of the episode. So this is a great episode. We talk about the Bitcoin ETF. We also talk about how they market to the financial advisory space generally, DeFi, and investing in other digital assets. I think you're going to enjoy the show. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you like it, of course, share it, rank it, give me feedback. And now I bring you the show with Matt Hogan. Welcome to the Encrypted Economy, where we look at the business of regulation and security for all things encrypted, digital assets, blockchain technology, privacy, and smart contracts. Hope you'll join us while we explore these forces that are shaping the economy. This is Eric Hess with The Encrypted Economy. I'm joined today with Matt Hogan, CIO of Bitwise. Matt, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. This is a treat. So you've had quite the background. Do you want to give us a little bit of an intro before we, we launch into things? Sure. Uh, so I started my career as a minor league baseball mascot. That, <laughs> that's actually true, but that's not where I'm going to start today. No, I come from a DBTF background. Hold so it, hold I, it, hold it, hold it, hold it. So the mascot, now you have to share what it was. We all had crazy jobs after college, right? I did a bunch of things. I was a sea kayak guide. One of the jobs I had was as a nine foot seal doing the YMCA dance and helping open car washes for the Portland Sea Dogs, double A affiliate today of the Red Sox at that time of the Marlins. And so that's a tiny piece of my background, but it doesn't influence me much today. Although if you need me to do the YMCA dance or the Cupid Shuffle, I, I'm happy to jump up and, and do that for you right now. So we don't have any video on this, but everybody should know that Matt is actually dressed up as a nine-foot seal for the purposes <laughs> of this podcast. So just whenever you think of him, just think of nine-foot seals. I'm sure now you're really excited you came on the podcast. So anyway, yeah, this I had great. to stop you. I had to stop you. I've got a, um, a nephew who's done the blue hen thing for University of Delaware. So I, it, it immediately hit home. And they actually do these conventions where they all dress up. It's amazing. It's, it's this whole subculture, uh, a lot of fun to it. But anyway, so we digress a little bit, but I'm glad we got the nine-foot foot seal out of the way because that was a choice tidbit I didn't want to miss. There, there you go. Yeah. A after that critical detour through the minor league baseball <laughs> mascotting world. No, most of my career has been built in the ETF space. So I was fortunate to be early in ETFs, uh, helped found and create and grow a company called ETF.com, which was a data media and events company helping financial advisors understand the ETF space. So we created that in the early 2000s when people call them EFTs when ETFs were referred to as weapons of mass destruction, when there were still congressional hearings about ETFs and whether they're ruining the American entrepreneurial economy. But we thought it was interesting. We were able to do a lot of firsts in that space. So we created the first ETF data and rating system, created the largest ETF conference in the world called Inside ETFs, and obviously a media platform in ETF.com that exists today. And I grew that business uh, along with a few colleagues from zero to over 60 people and sold it in 2015 and 2016. 
And then after an earnout, looked around for the next thing to do, the next area of finance that I thought had massive tailwinds, the potential for massive growth, but where the quality of information and understanding was really poor. And of course, crypto fit that bill perfectly, right? It is the land of hyperbole. At least in 2017, it was the land of poor quality information that's gotten a lot better. And it was a space where I thought there was a big gap between its potential future and the current level of understanding. And so the role I play as CIO of Bitwise is helping design strategies that help financial advisors allocate to the space. But mostly it's an educational role, helping people understand crypto, inter interfacing with professional investors and regulators and others, and trying to move crypto more into the mainstream as an asset. Excellent. Excellent. It, it's certainly fitting for the topic of this podcast, not coincidentally, obviously. So typically before launching into things, I like to ask my guests for a single event that shaped your values, your career, or your worldview. I've given Matt the nine foot seal a warning about this. He's prepared. It doesn't have anything to do with seals though, is my guess. It doesn't have anything to do with seals. It is career related. It followed on the seal job after I left mascotting. I ended up working for a, a mutual fund as a biotech analyst. And it was a very hot mutual fund, very tech focused mutual fund. It was a venture backed open mutual fund. We disclosed our trades in real time. We were Fortune's second coolest company in 2000 after Napster. So we were a big deal. And I thought I was such a hot shot, right? Young guy managing millions of dollars in a biotech portfolio. I was having so much fun. It was 1999, 2000. The market was ripping. It was just all very exciting and, and slightly unreal to me. That time was unreal in many ways, similar to this time right now. And I remember a moment I went in for media training and I thought, here I am, the hot shot. I'm doing media training because I'm going to be on CNBC. I'm 23 years old or whatever. Isn't this amazing? And I remember describing my job to the cameraman and the cameraman pausing, turning off the camera and saying, oh, yeah, I have my kids' college savings invested in your company's fund. And that just hit me as a ton of bricks. All this like fun and games and, and, and hypothetical money I was playing with was determining whether this cameraman could afford to send his kids to college or not. And it just hit home how important this role is. Part of the reason I've been in finance ever since, I don't come from a finance background. I studied philosophy and environmental studies in college. But part of the reason I, I stuck in finance was that moment just hit home how important it is to help people make sound financial decisions that are, that are appropriate for them and also how serious it is. And so that has been a linchpin of my career at ETF.com. And strangely, even though crypto is a hugely volatile asset class that most people should have very small exposure to if they're allocating at all, that they have to treat very carefully, it is a lesson that I take home and think about all the time that this is not a hypothetical game. This is real people's money and it influences their lives. And I remember that moment so clearly. I can still see the cameraman's face. I can see the entire setting. And it just, it was just reset me at just the right time in my career about how important it is, what people in this industry do. That's a great story. I remember when I was at the Direct Edge Exchange and we used to often talk about that we're all stewards of investor trust. We all have a stewardship role and some of us take it seriously and some of us don't, but the ones that take it seriously, they're the ones you want shaping things going forward. You fall into the latter camp for sure. Good to hear, which of course you wouldn't be on the show if you didn't, because we're not a high broadcast by any stretch. One of the things we're going to talk today is about SEC approval of Bitcoin ETFs. And I'll note that very recently, Kathy Woods of ARK Investment Management at a conference said, 
she thinks that the flooded demand has to be satisfied in order for us to get ETF approval, has to get well over a trillion. She said two trillion before the SEC will feel comfortable about it. And it's interesting also because a lot of people with Dahlia Blast, the director of SEC's investment management, who originally reflected this view, she's leaving. But Kathy Woods is obviously saying this is not just a Dahlia Blast issue. It's something that the SEC believes. So, you know, we've thought about whether it's market manipulation, custody audit, price stability. But this suggests that really what has to happen here is about size. So what do you think about that, Matt? I think that it's a great comment. It's an interesting point. And I think there are three important takeaways, two places where I agree with Kathy and one place where I disagree. So let's start with the places that I agree One really interesting thing about crypto, which I think gets lost because it gets such high profile coverage and there's so much venture capital investment and it's on the tip of so many people's tongues, is just how small it is. The whole thing is less than a trillion dollars. There are multiple, a dozen individual companies that are larger than the entirety of this crypto ecosystem. Back up six months, it was the same size as Procter & Gamble. And yet there's an Andreessen Horowitz fund specifically focused on this. The idea of an Andreessen fund specifically focused on Procter & Gamble is obviously absurd. And yet here we are in crypto. So she's right that it's smaller than the mind space that it occupies. She's also right from a technical perspective in terms of the requirements under the Exchange Act, or, or at least she's directionally right, the requirements under the Exchange Act that need to be met before an ETF can be approved to list. One of those requirements is that the ETF can't be the predominant source of price discovery in the market, or it can't come to overwhelm the market that it reflects. The SEC wants ETFs to be derivative instruments. They don't want the market for Bitcoin to be the Bitcoin ETF. They want Bitcoin to be the market for Bitcoin, and they want the ETF to be a way to gain exposure to that. So from a a technical perspective, she's right in that the market has to be large enough such that the ETF won't come to overwhelm it. Now, where we differ on that, and this is maybe the critical point, I think it already is, which we can get into. And the third thing she's talking about, or at least if you read between the lines, is that as more investors gain exposure to it, as it becomes more normalized, as mass mutual allocates, as BlackRock talks about allocating in its funds, maybe it creates some sort of pressure on the SEC to push this forward over the edge. I actually don't think that's right. I think the SEC is evaluating this from a very technical, rational perspective asking real questions that need to be asked. And I don't think it's the case that they need a certain amount of pressure. They know that there is significant retail demand for crypto, right? There are more Coinbase accounts than TD Ameritrade, Schwab, and E-Trade accounts combined. It's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. They're aware that people will, there are people who would love to see a Bitcoin ETF. They don't need more of that. So I don't think that's right. But I do think that technical question of whether the market is large enough to support enough is a valid question. I'm just of the view that it absolutely is. And there are other ETF analogs that show that. And and I think the math can show that too. And so talking about those analogs, maybe we can analogize this in the context of the history of ETFs and the similarity of concerns raised for things like leveraged ETFs and gold ETFs in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great point. Crypto operates in dog years, right? A week in crypto is like a year in the traditional capital market. So crypto people are very anxious and they look at something like Bitcoin, where the first filing was in 2013 and we're still waiting. And they're like, this is insane. But it is important to remember whether it's non-transparent active or leveraged ETFs or gold or even something as simple as bonds. Those took multiple years and the SEC raised legitimate concerns. 
this is nothing new. You're absolutely right that the concerns are different in each case, right? On non-transparent active ETFs, the primary concern was on arbitrage. On levered ETFs, a lot of it was on risk disclosure. Gold may be the most analogous in that there were significant concerns about custody, pricing, and the existence of regulated derivatives markets and other factors. And the SEC ultimately got comfortable with it. Look, if you ask me, was the Bitcoin market ready for an ETF in 2013? I would say no. Was it ready in 2017? I would say no as well. Now, do I think it's ready now? I think it's ready now. But that's up to us to convince the SEC. So the, the market has matured. We're getting closer. And I think, can't guarantee, but I think we'll get there eventually. And so as we think in terms of ETFs and, and structuring ETFs for the Bitcoin or, or any digital assets for that matter, you and I talked a bit about strategy considerations, whether it's a digital asset fund like Grayscale or other ETF structures. How do you think those strategies play out with regards to an ETF? By that, I mean things like lending, staking, forks, leverage, AMM. I know I hit you with a laundry list. You can go through it as you like. Yeah. But it's obviously going to be a component of any ETF. And would love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, my view is pretty simple, is that what people want when they're looking to invest in a hypothetical Bitcoin ETF is just exposure to the beta of Bitcoin. I could be wrong, but in my view, they don't want you to lend out your Bitcoin and earn an extra 5%, but put the entire capital at risk for an event you haven't anticipated. They want you to be able to claim forks should they occur, but only if they're meaningful, because you can sometimes put capital at risk if you do that, and only if you have diligence processes in place for when and how to claim and liquidate those forts. People just want exposure. One of the unique things about working at Bitwise is we've had funds in the market on the private side since 2017. So we've managed through things like the Bitcoin cash forks, and those are complex situations. But I think the model for people to, to think about is plain vanilla. Like as close as we can get to GLD holding bars of gold buried under London is what people want in a Bitcoin ETF, I think. They don't want futures exposure. They don't want you earning an extra 10% yield by lending it out. They don't want any funny business. They want something as close to WYSIWYG and, and as secure as they can, because quite honestly, historically, the beta of the Bitcoin market has been pretty good, right? The best performing asset class in the world, eight of the last 10 years, up nearly 300% last year. In that market, what matters is you minimize risk and you get simple exposure. And, and I think that's where we'll get, I would expect, whether it's Bitwise or another provider that ultimately gets approval if we do for a Bitcoin ETF. And, and it's a good point also in terms of complexity, certainly when you're looking at the trying to get something even approved for the first time, you're, you're going to give them a dish of vanilla. You're not going to say, hey, we're five different flavors, four different sprinkles in a hard shelled uh, chocolate coating on top. They'll be just <laughs> like, uh, no, I don't think so. It's easy. <laughs> but when we, in the context of different digital asset funds, and the continuum from an ETF playing vanilla to the different strategy considerations in a digital asset fund. I, I know you have thoughts on that. And even when we talk about digital asset funds, we, we think about Grayscale. And certainly now there's even this week, a nine point came out. I'm sure you're familiar with that. They're going to apparently lower management fee and eliminating a lockup period. So they're going right after Grayscale. But I digress a little bit right now. We'll come back to that. But thinking in terms of the funds and now even potentially the coins themselves, like in the DeFi space, being their own strategic considerations and the ETF, maybe talk about how you view some of these strategic considerations and how they fall into each bucket from the simple to the more complex. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great question. First of all, there's a, a product design perspective. And if you think about from a product design perspective, what everyone wants is the ETF, which is WYSIWYG and available in traditional custodians and trades on a traditional exchange at bid ask spreads that you can see. That's what everyone wants. Everything we have is some imperfect version of that. It could be a private fund that's only available to accredited investors and has paperwork burden. It could be an OTC traded shares of a private fund that can trade at substantial premiums and discounts. It could be a venture capital fund that has a carry on top of it. It could be buying it on your phone and exposing yourself to SIM risks or the Apple iOS risk that was disclosed yesterday. They all have hair on them. So, so we're chasing this platonic ideal of exposure as close as we can to get to it. And right now, investors have to wrestle with which pluses and minuses of the existing approximations they want. When you get beyond the product structure question and you get into sort of strategic design in, in terms of coins and other things, you really have to think about, I would say, three things. And you have to evaluate providers on these three things. So the first thing I would encourage people to evaluate providers on is to get back to that sort of binary or uncompensated risk question. Is the security design of the fund adequate to meet your needs? Do they have processes in place to evaluate coins from a regulatory perspective to screen out regulatory risks? Are they considering the liquidity of the coins, et cetera? Because this is a market that emerged from the grassroots to where it is today, and it's not like the traditional equity market. So even in something, we run a very simple strategy, right? We run a, a crypto index fund. That's like the S&P 500. But I can tell you the amount of diligence we have to do in this space compared to a traditional equity fund is significantly higher at the index level. I edited the Journal of Indexes for 10 years. I'm an index geek through and through. And this is a complex ecosystem, even to do an index strategy. But beyond those binary risks, then you have to talk about sector exposures. You and I know, and many investors don't know, that different crypto assets are going after completely different markets. It might be not completely different, but very different markets. And so you have to decide which of those markets you think are most interesting. And then once you decide that, and that could be broad-based, it could be Bitcoin only in the digital store of gold, it could be DeFi, it could be Web 3.0, there are multiple spaces. Then you have to decide active versus passive. Crypto likes to talk about everything being new. It's really the same thing. It's just different things are more emphasized. Product structuring, more complex, security and other risks. But then you get down to active and passive and sector exposure, and it's actually very similar. And there are lots of sectors that I find very exciting in the space. Interesting. And certainly when you're talking about coins to the extent that they're having some of the properties of a fund, but there's also risk considerations, right? Meaning there's always risk considerations in an ETF that's registered. There's a certain stability for a digital asset fund, which has a lot of disclosure and has people clearly managing it. And it's a centralized structure. In some cases, that might give an investor more comfort than a decentralized. I'm not saying that decentralized shouldn't. I'm just saying that might be one of the considerations that you're gravitating toward. When you go to DeFi, I think, and be interesting to get your perspective on it, there's a wide range. And today, we just use the word DeFi. And for a lot of people, they're just like, huh? And even for us, sometimes we're trying to parse out the different structures within decentralized. It's just basically decentralized, and they're within specific coins. But it's actually a very huge space that's only going to get more complex. And the facts are only going to become more and more important because when you look at things like lending, staking, forks, leverage, automated market making, particularly if it's an investment-based DeFi coin, which a lot of them are these days, let's face it, there's not a lot of actual the practical application in the works yet. There's a lot of speculation. 
these are all going to become very critical considerations. Hugely critical considerations. And also the underlying protocols are very complex and their testing in extreme market conditions is uncertain. I worry a lot about, I love the DeFi space, I should say. I think it's one of the most exciting spaces in finance. I think it has huge applications. I think Brian Brooks' term, self-driving banks, makes it very obvious to people what it is and what it is about and what it's trying to do. And particularly in this moment in time where we're wrestling with the questions of centralization and decentralization in the financial ecosystem, I think there is a, a huge catalyst to the space. Really fundamentally exciting. I worry a little bit about like Donald Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns. Even if you're an expert in this space and you read the underlying white paper of any asset, even the well-established ones, Uniswap, Aave, et cetera, it's very hard to test them against the most extreme market conditions. And so where that leads me back in DeFi, maybe I'm talking my book here, or maybe I'm just too much of a dyed in the wool indexer, is that diversification in this space is really important. So do I have a great deal of confidence that DeFi as a segment is going to be much more important in the future than it is today? Absolutely. Could we see significant blowups in one or more asset because of some unforeseen set of circumstances that allow for the exploitation uh, of that asset or that, that lead to impermanent loss that looks a lot like permanent loss? I think that's absolutely possible. These are fast moving spaces. They're now dealing with real money. It's hugely exciting, but the unknowns stick in my mind. And, and the answer to that as an investor, I think, is to diversify your bets. In this space, there's certainly you see a lot of FOMO and people often when you're dealing with an investment strategy that's based on FOMO, you often don't really take a look at the flip side of it. And it's important to keep a level head on this and think there's a fear of missing out, but there's also a fear of getting in and not adequately considering the risk on the flip side. And it's risky. It's either you're contemplating that, for example, Ave and I don't know to what extent it's actually protected. They're doing like a pooled insurance fund, which I think is a great idea. But right. that's not, and, and that that's a relative risk benefit. But it's going to be interesting to see how these the DeFi space evolves. And I also think like at some point, we're just going to stop using the term DeFi and just calling it for what it is, because it's just it's like this big bucket. And it's like an aquarium inside this bucket. And we're just saying, hey, this is the aquarium bucket. No, there's like a bazillion different fish and they're all unique and individual and they all have specific considerations. We just don't know enough about what's in the bucket. So we're just calling it DeFi for lack of a better word. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to when DeFi is just not even a term anymore. That's that, that's going to be a good day, I think. Yeah, um, I, I think we'll get there. <laughs> Shifting back to, uh, we'll we'll go to the, the grayscale gorilla, uh, so to speak. Let's talk about some of the differences that you see across funds and trends and strategies and, and how you think that impacts the market. Yeah, Grayscale deserves a huge amount of plaudits as a pioneer in the space. Their regulatory foresight and innovation that allowed for private placement crypto asset exposures to trade on the OTC market opened up crypto to a large number of investors. And I think that's a phenomenal thing. And I, I give them a great deal of credit. And they're a great competitor. Uh, and I want to crush them, of course. But I respect <laughs> them uh, deeply. No, I think it's like the early days of the ETF space where, where iShares uh, and, and State Street were there and, and other competitors emerged as well. And that's going to happen in the crypto space. Bitwise is one of those competitors. I do think an interesting thing about the different providers in the space is that they seem to be going after different markets. So when I think about uh, a grayscale, and actually when I think about crypto as a whole, one unique thing about crypto is that they go after the barbells of asset owners in the U.S. equity market. 
So uh, huge focus on retail investors and that in the broad-based advertising that Grayscale does. Huge focus on institutional investors. And we know significant hedge funds and institutional investors are major users of Grayscale. Bitwise takes a different approach. We're actually focused on the financial advisor market, which is like the middle of the ecosystem. And that's true in crypto in general, right? There's Coinbase serving retail and there's Andreessen serving institutions. And the financial advisor market is often left out of the equation. The really interesting thing about that is it's as big as the institutional market. Financial advisors control most of the retail wealth in America. It's four or five or six times bigger than the retail self-directed market, even though that's very in vogue right now. Income is unevenly distributed in the U.S. Most of wealthy income is managed through a financial advisor. And so we think that's a different market. And how does that manifest itself? It manifests itself in a focus on different strategies, right? Grayscale primarily focused on single coin exposure, although they have some diversified product. Uh, Bitwise primarily focused on index funds because that's the primary way that financial advisors get exposure to the space. I imagine down the road, there'll be major active managers that emerge. I think the reason we haven't seen a lot of focus on that is because twofold. One, it's hard to diligence an active manager until they have a multi-year track record. Multi-year track records are few and far between in crypto. Uh, Bitwise is one of the oldest providers. We've been around for three years. And two, many of those active managers have decided to go into a more lucrative hedge fund exposure as opposed to charging a limited expense ratio fee. They like to carry on top, particularly when the beta in the space is up multiple thousands percent over three years. That carry on that beta alone has been very lucrative. There's a single coin provider. We're maybe the leader in the index space. I expect you'll see active strategies emerge and it'll look an awful lot like the traditional finance world. You'll see sector funds. Again, nothing new under the sun. It's much more interesting, much more exciting. There's much more growth. There's much more opportunity. You have to be more careful in your design, but it, we'll see the same innovations that we've seen in, in the traditional financial space, I think, applied into crypto. Yeah, and I think for an ETF like yours, it's got to be appealing to investment managers. One of the first episodes we did was with Joel Revel of Two Oceans Trust. And if you recall, he was the, the pioneer in getting the qualified custodian letter from the Wisconsin Division of, of Banking. It's created some controversy, which is good because the SEC is now taking up the issue and wants clarity. And I think even Fidelity submitted an, uh, a comment letter on it and saying, hey, if we're in New York and we have to respond to the, the bit license in New York, that should also make us a qualified custodian or any investment advisors. But there's it's challenging to be a pioneer in this space. It's great to be a trailblazer. It's great to be the first on the ground, but it comes with the challenges because there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of shifting winds and trying to anticipate it. Investment advisors are being asked by their clients for exposure. And the SEC asks us face up to the fact that, hey, how do we want people to go out and get this exposure? We want to give them more options. So it's a compelling reason. It doesn't exactly follow the trajectory of the historical ETS because there's a lot of demand and particularly everything going on. And it's actually another thing I wanted to cover with you, which is the egalitarianism uh, of, of Bitcoin to the extent you want to protect the, the public. But at what point, if there's that demand, does that protection actually act as a gate to participating in a very important diversificated, uh, diversificated, di diversification strategy? I, I, I'm even just going to leave that in so people it's know that. my new favorite word, for sure. Diversificated. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Anyway, you know, and, and so what are your thoughts on egalitarianism and that that it's obviously a balancing act, but, mm -hmm. but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, first, you're right that Bitcoin and crypto more broadly is this incredible egalitarian alternative asset, 
right? It's been very difficult for most investors to get exposure to an asset that at least historically has had uh, high potential returns, low correlations and liquidity. Most retail investors have not been able to get even two of those things in a single package, let alone all three. Even institutional investors have a hard time getting liquid access to non-correlated assets, but retail investors forget about it. So that's phenomenal. As long as those retail investors understand the risks and the limitations and can stomach the behavioral risks of an asset that is as volatile as, as crypto, which is something I worry a lot about. But you're asking about the investor good element and whether that should drive the SEC forward. And I think if you read the disapproval letters that the SEC has written in disapproving the Winklevoss Trust, in disapproving the Bitwise first application, in disapproving the Wilshire Phoenix application, there's hundreds of pages of the SEC's thoughts on Bitcoin ETFs in there. And it's phenomenal reading if you're as geeky about this as me. They acknowledge that it may be beneficial to the market to have a Bitcoin ETF. And I think they're aware that if they could get comfortable to allow an ETF to exist, it would be a good thing. At least I, I believe they're aware. I'm not sure they've written that, but I, my heart of heart tells me that, that they're aware. But, but they're primary in investor protections. And the thing about that argument that really strikes home with me is that argument was probably true in 2013, maybe even more true, right? Because the alternatives for investing in 2013 were really pretty cruddy. There were a lot of, there weren't even standard regulations for custodians. There were a lot of shoddy crypto companies providing custody and trading. It was a mess of an ecosystem. But the SEC disapproved that, and I think rightly so, because the ecosystem was not ready for an ETF in 2013. It was way too small. Custody wasn't very well developed. There were a number of issues. And, and I'm not just saying this because I want the SEC to look friendly upon me. I think they've been asking good questions. And I do think we've gotten to the point where those questions can be satisfied. And I think a Bitcoin ETF would be good for investors, but they've been right to, to ask those questions all along. So I don't blame them for, for taking their time. That said, I'm working nights and weekends to get us across the line. And so I wanted to also touch on something else, which is Ethereum. I guess one question is, by the time, let's say that 2021 is not the year for a Bitcoin ETF, and, and there's probably... I, I I don't know if I'd put my money on 2021 being the year. I just don't. And it's not because of what, what Kathy Wood said, although having somebody who's smarter than me on this state that probably a little persuasive. But my question is, within the next year or two, do you think it's possible that the narrative or the way that the asset class is viewed so that where a Ethereum ETF may actually be more compelling than a Bitcoin ETF. What do you think the likelihood of that is? I'll say two things. I think Ethereum is hugely compelling right now. If you look at the growth in the decentralized finance space, most of which is built upon Ethereum, it's classic Silicon Valley, right? The amount of money locked in DeFi protocols has gone from zero to, to close to $30 billion in the space of a year. And two other things are true, which are the mainstream media hasn't caught on at all. There are four articles in the Wall Street Journal's archive that use the words decentralized finance. Uh, four. There are hundreds, I'm sure, that use Bitcoin and crypto. And most people don't understand it at all. Most people are where they were with Bitcoin in 2015, not even 2016 or 2017, with decentralized finance and Ethereum. So I think it's a hugely exciting asset. Dave Abner, another ex-ETF executive who recently joined Gemini, said it would be the asset of the year in 2021. I don't think he's wrong. And we're going to get futures launched on the CME in February. And that's a signal moment 
that I think people overlook because there's a large unregulated futures market, but as a signaling mechanism to institutional investors that this area of the market matters, I think it's hugely important and hugely exciting. Now, I do think, I think a Bitcoin ETF will be the first ETF an SEC approves if they approve an ETF. But I think people may, it depends on how that futures market develops, how, how the market develops, they may be overestimating the interval between a Bitcoin ETF and an ETH ETF. That's the part that I would agree with you on. We'll see. Yeah, I think from a Main Street perspective, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why uh, a Bitcoin might be more compelling and certainly there's certainly more people trying to get it. But the Ethereum narrative, I think, is intriguing for an ETF. And I think we'll see that soon, more so. And, and to kind of shift into Ethereum, I know you have some views. You've spoken about Ethereum and you just spoke about it now. But I've heard you speak about the, or, or read what you've written about replacing huge chunks of rent-seeking, history of bad behavior, and solvency risk financial system with something that's more software-based, easy to audit, non-reliant on human judgment, vastly more efficient. I know we, we talked about it a little bit, but from here, how do you see Ethereum evolving not just as an asset class, as a use case that influences other digital assets that layer on top of it or use it as the rails for a layer two solution? Yeah. Oh, great question. Let me see how I want to tackle this. You know, <laughs> first, I, I think 99% of people don't understand the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum and can't understand why it's being built on Ethereum and not on Bitcoin. And that's obvious to you and I. We know that the code bases are different. One is Turing complete and one is not Turing complete makes Bitcoin more secure, ETH more innovative. But I think you need that education to penetrate. I think what's going to happen, all of the growth in DeFi that's taking place on Ethereum right now is intra-crypto, right? It's automated market making. It's over-collateralized lending. I think in some way, and I'm not smart enough to figure it out, that will trickle outside of the ETH economy or the crypto economy in the next year in some fashion. And I don't know what that fashion will be it could even be something as, as small as software-based escrow programs, which of course you could do at Bitcoin, but people are more likely to do on ETH. It could be something around automated market mending crossing into to other assets. I'm not sure what it will be, but I think it'll trickle and I think it'll be this year. And then I, I think we're off to the races. I did another interesting point on ETH, which has come up. I only raised this because it's come up in six different advisor conversations I've had in the last two weeks. The other interesting thing about ETH, people dismiss it as a store of value in competition with Bitcoin. And I think there are two arguments that that also may be wrong. The thing that's resonating with a lot of people is Bitcoin is very carbon intensive and ETH offers a non-carbon intensive or will soon offer a non-carbon intensive alternative to a decentralized store of value. And I don't think we can discount that some amount of the digital store of value market will want a non-carbonized alternative. And so, so that's an interesting piece. And it's also the truth that something that is useful can also be a store of value. I live in a house, I live in it, I sleep in it, it's useful. It's also a store of value for me personally. And so you can imagine ETH having this huge applicative use in decentralized finance, but also accruing store of value metrics. And I think that makes it really interesting from an investment perspective, obviously there are huge risks, but it makes me really excited when I look at the size of the asset, look at that store of value optionality and look at the growth of DeFi it's a really intriguing combination. 
Yeah, I'm a buyer into it. I'll share that my daughter's 18 and she's getting into trading. And so for Christmas, I gave her ETH. That was because uh, I said, listen, this is the future. I think ETH is going to dominate conversations for a longer period of time. The Bitcoin, that's not me shilling for either. And I know others may disagree and I'm not trying to rile anybody who's listening, but that's, I, I think the potential for ETH is just limitless. It's really and, exciting. It's really yeah. exciting. Risky, yes. but really exciting. Yeah, and then there'll be other layer two protocols as well. But you got to bet on just where they've, everybody says, the gas charge and this, that. And but it's a very dynamic community. And you can't just look at it as like in a, oh, there's all these problems with ETH today. It's actually, it's evolving. It's not static by any stretch. And it's an impressive community as well. So uh, a few weeks ago, the Stone Ridge letter came out and it was uh, seen as a, a phenomenal piece that attracted a lot of attention describing the case for bit for Bitcoin and even talking about carbon friendliness but it was very well written as an educational piece other pieces that you've come across that sort of have that same compelling that's good for the sort of the more main street person to become more familiar with either Bitcoin and or ETH but just the market generally Man, that Stonebridge letter was so annoying because it was so good. I was frustrated that I hadn't written it. It was like everything that I try to articulate, but articulated 25% better. I was really impressed by that. I, I think sharing that widely is really valuable. There are a few other things that recently come to mind. I'll, I'll do the self-promotional prod. I just published the CFA Institute's first ever guide to cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and blockchain, which is a 64 page introduction for financial professionals. So I, does, I think it does a pretty good job on the intro to crypto and why the landscape looks like it is. It's for free. You can download it on the CFA's website. There are a few other podcasts that, that I think are, are really incredible podcasts. I was looking to one, listening to one recently, Nick Carter did on the Grant Williams podcast, which we can link to in the show notes, which is an incredible discussion of fear and uncertainty and doubt around crypto and, and, and tackles those questions head on. I think those three are a great introduction. I haven't seen a fantastic intro and overview into the decentralized finance market. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I've seen a lot of shots on goal, but it feels a little bit like crypto writing and thought felt in 2017 when quite honestly, most of it was like you'd half recommend it and then half of it you'd disagree with. I think that's where we are on DeFi. It's a really complex place. I haven't written anything that's geniusly great on DeFi either. So that's a space where you have to take bits and pieces from a, a wide variety of sources at this point. We'll wait for the canonical report. And maybe this time I'll actually write it. We'll see. And so in touching on that educational component, now you talk directly with investment advisors about adoption. And so maybe share with us a little bit of the shift, because I think one of the things that when we had Joel Revel on, he mentioned that investment advisors still hadn't really gotten it. Maybe part of it is because they didn't have the right alternatives and it's a little risky. But what's those conversations like today? What are the concerns that are being raised to you? Like, how is that? What's the shape of that discussion? Yeah, I'd start with many financial advisors still don't understand why blockchain and why public blockchains that are backed by crypto assets need to exist. They either envision Bitcoin as something that they'll use to buy a mocha frappuccino, uh, or they think someone created an Excel spreadsheet and just changes lines on it. So you still need to have a fundamental conversation about not what mining is, but what, but what blockchain is. The thing that's changed over the last three years, a few things have changed, probably two big things. One, the percentage of people who think it's going away has fallen dramatically. And I don't say that anecdotally. We did a survey of a thousand advisors. The percentage of people, we've done it every year for three years, 
the percentage of those advisors who think the price is going below $1,000 has fallen from something, and I don't remember the exact statistics, something like 40% two years ago to something like 8% today. It's been a dramatic shift. So I think that concept that this is just going away is going away. And it's hard to overstate how important that is. Because if you think that a digital store of value and a decentralized finance market is going to exist, if you accept that precondition, it's hard to argue that it won't become extremely important. Once you accept that it will exist into the world, it's hard to imagine that it will be an obscure asset held by a small variety of people that accounts for 4% of the market cap of gold or whatever it is. Your timeline to getting it to be truly substantial may be longer than mine, but once you accept that it exists, the eventual point you get to is pretty significant. And that's a shift that's happened. The other shift that happened is just the easy no's have gone away. You can often present an idea to somebody and they're like, oh, well, who's the custodian? I've never heard of them. Are they regulated? No. Do they have insurance? No. Okay, next. And people used to have those easy outs. The outs are much harder now. It's qualified custodian. There's liquid trading. Jane Street's making markets in it. Mass Mutual is investing. BlackRock is owning it in its global owl fund, or at least has the ability to. So the easy outs have gone away. People have accepted that it itself is not going away. And that creates much more interesting conversations where you, you can't ignore it. You have to wrestle with it. Yeah, and I also think, I feel like in the last month or so, you're seeing more stories about quiet accumulation by large institutions, that the, the worst kept secrets is that they're trying to quietly accumulate it, which I think is intriguing. And for those who are paying attention to it, it's worth paying attention to. Yeah. Uh, anyway, before I, I move on, because I, I don't want to miss a question that I probably should definitely ask you. So I'm going to ask you, what question have I not asked you that I probably should have asked you on this show? Ooh, that's a good question. I, I should have warned you about that one up front too. Anyway. Yeah, there are lots of questions that I won't give you an answer to, like what's my price target for Bitcoin in a year or will an ETF be approved in the next year? You could ask me what I worry about. That's always a good question. If you're bullish on something, you should know the bearish case and at least be considering it. That's a good one. And, and the answer there, I worry about two things. I spend a lot of time worrying about behavioral risk and that's relevant to questions like an ETF that put trading easily within fingertips. Crypto is a highly volatile asset and there's a, a lot of hype around the media coverage. And so behavioral outcomes disagreeing with the long-term outcome of the asset class is something that I worry about a great deal. On the what could disrupt crypto's growth, like everyone, I worry a little bit about regulatory overreach. I don't see it as the likely path forward. I see the likely regulatory path forward as a good crypto, bad crypto path where privacy coins and certain other sort of grassroots elements are severely constricted. And there's a sandbox for Bitcoin and DeFi and other exciting areas of the market. But it doesn't have to be the case. If you look back at the history of the internet in the 1990s, there were a few regulatory decisions that determined whether the US was the center of growth for internet companies or not. And it doesn't have to turn out one way or the other. So that's something that I I think we're trending in the right direction. The, the signs suggest we're trending in the right direction, but politics and regulatory decisions, they can shift quickly. So it's something I think about a lot. Yeah, good point. And, and that, that was a good question that I asked, but did not ask. So excellent. So we taped the episode with Matt a couple of weeks ago, and then lo and behold, they, they dropped this news about creating their DeFi fund. Then I reached out to Matt. I'm like, 
we're publishing it next week. I got to get this on the podcast. This is big news. I can't just like publish it and talk about it myself at the beginning. So Matt, thanks for agreeing to come on again to talk about this exciting new fund. I'm thrilled to be here and, and give you the update. Perfect timing. Just to give a quick breakdown, Bitwise has created this DeFi fund, and Matt's going to tell you more about it, but it's got Aave and Uniswap at 25% allocation, looks like, Maker and SNX at 10%, Compound, Uma, Yearn Finance, Ox, and Loopring are also components in it. Obviously, you know more about this than me, so why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. I mean, the DeFi space is one of the most exciting, potentially huge, risky areas of the market that I've ever seen this early, right? It's emerged effectively out of nothing into a multi-billion dollar economy over the last six months. And the projects in here are enormously exciting. You ran through a few of them. Uniswap doing $30 billion a month in volume in a decentralized exchange. It's incredible. Uh, Aave processing uh, flash loans that are measured in some cases above $100 million. It's incredible. Yearn Finance doing sort of what money market funds have tried to do through history with mixed capabilities in the crypto ecosystem, real money involved in it. It's tremendously exciting. And I think this idea of decentralized finance appeals to a lot of people. We look at the traditional legacy financial system. We imagine how software and automation can make it more efficient. But the reality is the people that Bitwise serves, financial advisors, family offices, multifamily offices, they don't know that much about Uniswap and Aave. They may never have heard of them. They're certainly not prepared to investigate them, decide which is the most important, most secure. And so an index fund has resonated with this audience tremendously well because in a sense, it's the S&P 500 of decentralized finance. On another sense, We have a panel of five sort of experts from the DeFi world that's providing a layer of analysis and protection to screen out certain risks. Uh, And it makes it easy to bet on the space without having single protocol blow up risk, which I think is both very real in this space and something you should worry about. Right. So, and it's interesting in the context of an asset allocator, they may not be permitted to go and speculate it, but if it's an index fund, it's a wrapper that's fund friendly, right? That's exactly right. And- It gives you exposure to the whole space and you don't have to watch it every month. I mean, one thing that's true about this space is it moves incredibly quickly. A project that didn't exist yesterday can become a multi-million dollar and eventually billion dollar project within a month. Interest in the DeFi ecosystem can shift from this to that to the other extremely quickly. So the other benefit for someone whose front page of their computer is not a crypto-specific publication who maybe actually reads the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times instead first, is this project is continually updated, right? It reconstitutes on a monthly basis. So it makes it easy to set it and forget it. And, you know, I will say just from my perspective, I love this space. I think it's really exciting. I fully expect there to be blowups in the future. I fully expect there to be hacks. I fully expect there to be issues. And I wouldn't want exposure to a single project, right? There's just too much risk. Even even for someone as bullish as me, I want that diversification. I love, you know, we also offer a broad-based sort of large cap crypto index fund. I love that strategy. I own it. I think it's wonderful. I think indexing is even more exciting in the DeFi space just because there's so much single project risk and you can diversify away from it. In sort of targeting your audience for this, you're walking into a family office and they're saying, what's Bitcoin? 
obviously that's not somebody going to be like, yeah, well, there's Bitcoin, but there's also DeFi. Be like, huh? <laughs> Is that like Wi-Fi, but removed or I don't know. Where are the conversations that you're having on this? Like, give us a sense of who's listening. Yeah, I'll say there are three classes of people that we've encountered when we want to talk about DeFi. So one, there's a broad class of people for whom the concept is interesting, but they're not ready to invest. So the, the way we decide, for instance, if a project belongs in the index is does it compete directly with a business line of a f- company that's in, say, the Select Sector Spiders Financials ETF, right? Does it compete directly with JP Morgan or the New York Stock Exchange or insurance company? If it is, it goes in the fund. That concept at that 30,000 foot level resonates with almost everyone. They've seen disruptive technologies compete with established entrenched large companies before, and they've seen that that's been exciting. So people are, everyone is interested who's in the financial ecosystem. Now, most of them aren't ready to invest. The two people who are investing into the fund, and we're taking investments now, it's coming from two sources. One, clients who have been with us for a while, who were willing to take the plunge into Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and other large cap crypto assets, not in the last three months, when it's been front page news and BlackRock is allocating, but who have been with us for a while, are comfortable with the ecosystem and now want the next thing, right? They want to be Bitcoin 2015, not 2021. Uh, And DeFi represents that. The, The interesting other piece is a new area of business for us is actually crypto experts who are allocating into the DeFi fund for all the reasons that we discussed. So our large cap index fund, right? Bitcoin, ETH, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, Chainlink, people have opinions about those. And crypto experts have very strong opinions about those. There are people who love Bitcoin and hate ETH. There are people who love Bitcoin and hate Bitcoin Cash. There are Bitcoin Cash people who think Litecoin is ridiculous. People in the crypto economy have very strong opinions. And for most of those people, an index project is not the right approach because they want to invest in something specific. But those people, when they get down to DeFi, they recognize that this is a diverse, rapidly changing space. And so we actually have significant interest from what I would call sort of native crypto investors in just wanting to get exposure to something like DeFi in a diversified package. And that's a new audience for us. And it's been really interesting to see it emerge. A lot of the projects like ETH, Cardano, DOT, these are all projects where you can stake. And that's a long-term hold because once you stake it, you can't withdraw it. For most people, if they're going to buy Bitcoin, it's an inflationary hedge. It's the view on what happens to the economy in the future. DeFi is totally not that case at all. And it changes so rapidly. And people are going to have a hard time formulating a long-term view. Like Aave is a great platform. They've grown amazingly. But to your point, there is a lot of risk in this space. And so you go deep on one and something happens. Are you going to be following the news actively enough so that you can make the adjustment on the fly and see things across all the different platforms and the new up and comers and making sure you have exposure to that? So it's so dynamic that it's in many ways, even in my view, maybe even more compelling than your index fund, but I'm not going to take it away from your index fund. (laughs) I'm with you. I'm with you. I actually agree with that. I think it is more compelling as a solution to an investor problem than our index strategy, precisely because what you said, I mean, a year and a half ago, Uniswap was an idea on a t-shirt. Now it's trading $30 billion in, in volume. It's hard to keep up. The space is so early. And so having a team backed by a panel of experts that's watching this 24-7. Yeah, I actually think it's it's important in this space. So how actively, speaking of altering the exposures, how actively do you plan to alter those exposures? 
Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's market cap weighted. So it does reflect the largest market cap assets in the market. The, the screens that we have are really things to screen out binary or uncompensated risk. So all the standard screens that are in our index fund, things like, is it likely to be deemed a security, which is a real question in this space. A lot of these projects emerged through traditional venture capital finance approaches and whether they've been distributed enough to get over security rules, it takes a great deal of analysis. Can it be custodied is still a major thing. Can it be custodied on a major third-party platform? And then there are more almost discretionary angles where our advisory council and our own views come into play. Like, is it susceptible to a hack? Has it been screened for code audits and those sorts of things? Is it accepting real use? I think for the most part, once projects get into the index, they're less likely to be kicked out for these initial screens, right? Because they, they've met our qualifications to get in the index. And we're not making an active bet that says this is better project than that. We're just trying to screen out these binary risks. Of course, things could develop down the, the road. What I do think will happen is new projects will emerge that are institutionally significant, and some of those will qualify. And some projects that people are familiar with may qualify in the future as they evolve, right? There's some large DeFi projects that people are well acquainted with, like Sushi, which aren't in the index because they didn't meet our qualifications at this time. That doesn't mean they're not a good investment. It just means it doesn't fit our sort of institutional paradigm. And of course, that could change. So we look at it every month. We update the constituents. So it just launched a week ago or, or a few days ago, actually. And we'll look at it again at the end of the month and, and we'll monitor it in between that. So every month you'll see if a new constituent comes in or a new one comes out. What's the investment minimum? It's 25K. Sounds good. All right, Matt, That's uh, we're tacking this on another episode. We could probably do a whole other episode on this, so we'll have to reevaluate it. But this was great, and I really appreciate covering it because I think it's exciting and, and it's the first of its kind, honestly. So um, breaking news. Well, thanks for having me on to talk about it. I really enjoyed it. And we'll come back, yeah, and do it again. See how it awesome. turned out. Great. Thanks so much, Matt. All right.